0: Well, hey, if it is your first time visiting us here at Hosanna in our room, or if you're joining us online for the first time, we want to say welcome to all of you. We're so glad you're here to worship with us today at Hosanna Christian Fellowship. I am Pastor Nathan, and today we are going to be taking a look, a great panoramic look at spiritual warfare by taking a look back from the very beginning of time all the way up to the point we find ourselves at in Revelation during the Great Tribulation. Chapter 12 of Revelation, which we're starting this morning, introduces a section of Revelation that highlights seven main characters. Um, These characters are characters we know, characters we are familiar with through, or at least you would be familiar with if you're a biblical uh, student. But they're characters that in the story here in Revelation, some of them have their, um, have been renamed, given nicknames, if you will, based upon characteristics of their personality, much like we do that with one another, right? Sometimes you'll have somebody with a certain personality characteristic and their nickname will come up out of that, you know? Uh, mine has been gentle and meek, no, not all the time. <laughs> but. The characters that are introduced here in chapter 12 of Revelation are the woman, the dragon, the male child, Michael the archangel, the beast from the sea, the beast from the land, and lastly, the saved remnant of Israel. Now, these seven characters are going to be introduced over the courses of chapters 12, 13, and 14, and we're going to look at them all in detail as they come up, but this entire section... 12, 13, and 14 of Revelation is, is, is kind of like a look back over history and a look back over the entire tribulation period, this entire seven years that is that we call the tribulation period, but it's a look back at all of that from the vantage point of Satan, from his perspective, from his um, sense of goal and priority. And really you know it's it's a picture of the spiritual warfare that's taken place from the beginning of time you know it's it's since the original fall of satan from heaven biblically we know that there has been warfare in the spiritual realm now the theater of battle for satan has been earth from the very beginning and so this morning we're going to look at the first 3 of these 7 characters that i've referenced the woman the dragon and the male child as we look at the first six verses of chapter 12 of Revelation. And really what we're going to focus in on is the satanic battlefield, the devil's strategy, who's involved in this spiritual warfare that we're looking at, and really how we can face the temptation and the trials that come from the enemy and find victory in those things. As we enter this section of Revelation, however, we can't forget a very, very important truth. It's a critical truth. We already know who wins, and that is a glorious truth for every believer. You know, last week, as we looked at the end of chapter 11, we saw the victory chant was voiced by those in heaven. The victory chant was proclaimed. The winner was declared. As what was said in heaven was, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. You see, before this great spiritual battle ever began, before the fight even started, before the battle that we're gonna be looking at here in chapters 12, 13, and 14, before all of that, the battle was over. It was won, it was decided, the victor was declared. The kingdom of this world, as it said, has become the kingdom of our Lord. It's interesting because it was in the past, distant past, that this was written in the past tense, speaking of a future event that hadn't happened yet. But we know that God Almighty is outside of time. He is timeless, He's not limited by time the way we are. He sees the end from the beginning, and He already knows who wins. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord. This victory was written about long ago and spoken forth by the one who is outside of time himself, the one who sees all things. God has won. And that is one of the great encouragements of the book of Revelation. That is one of the reasons why we stress over and over that this isn't just a book of future events. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ because Jesus has won. He has won the victory for his people. So these chapters that we're looking at, they're gonna take us from times past, times distant past, all the way into times future, and they're gonna show us Satan's plan. They're gonna show us what his plan was from from the very beginning. We're gonna see as we move through these chapters the rise of this great world dictator referred to as the Antichrist. We're gonna see the introduction of what is called the unholy trinity the unholy trinity of being a a false, wicked, evil counterfeit of the Godhead, which is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see this unholy trinity as we see the devil, the antichrist, and the false prophet all come together, enacting the plan that the devil has. We can never forget that Satan is the arch enemy of God, the arch enemy of God. Satan hates God. He rebelled in heaven, the Bible tells us, We're going to see today that he took one-third of the angels with him in that rebellion as him and those angels fell from heaven. He tried in his original rebellion to overthrow the paradise of heaven. Failing that, he tried to overthrow the paradise of God on earth. And we read about that in Genesis as he was cursed for doing so. And ever since, he's been trying to ruin everything else. Satan is a ruiner. He's a destroyer. And he's been trying to ruin everything, including trying to prevent God's eternal kingdom from ever happening, from ever being able to come to, to come to the forefront. And that's what we're looking at this morning, really a historical look at Satan's plan from the beginning, how he's attacked, specifically how he's attacked the nation of Israel, trying to prevent the very birth of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and having failed at that, trying so hard to destroy the very people that will make up the kingdom of God to come. But first, we're going to worship God, we're going to praise His name, because we always want to start with just focusing in on God. Why? Because God is one. We have victory as His people, and we know that. We have the hope of Christ, we have the hope of heaven, and hallelujah, isn't that something to praise God for? Amen. God, we're so grateful, Lord, to you. We're so grateful for the victory you've given us, Lord, and we're so thankful, God, for the salvation that you purchased for us by your blood, Lord. God, you set us free you granted us victory over sin and death lord and god we know in the big picture of history god we know that satan has been fighting tooth and nail or tooth and claw if you will from the very beginning lord to try and cause your plan for the redemption of humanity to fall apart lord but god he is nothing compared to you and you win you've already declared your victory lord we're just in the process of living that out lord and God, we know today we're living in still in this age of grace where we have an opportunity, Lord, to just keep going out and be in lights for the gospel and preaching, Lord. But we know a time is coming, Lord, in that age of grace. This age of grace will be over, Lord. The time of your judgment will come upon the earth. And we know, God, that that time will be terrible. And so, Lord, as we're looking today, God, at, at really a, a look back, a historical look at, at Satan's plan from the beginning to the end, God, Lord, we would be reminded of who he is, Lord, because it is important for us to know our enemy. To know our enemy that we would fight appropriately, that we would fight accordingly, that we would fight victoriously, God. Not being overcome by the enemy, but standing in righteousness in all times, in all ways and at all times, Lord. So God, we love you. We want to praise your holy name for the victory you've already granted us. Thank you so much for everything you do in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. We are in Revelation chapter 12, and we're going to start here in verse 1. It says, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Now one of the first things I want to point out to all of us here as we're looking at these, these pictures and these images and endeavoring to say what do they mean, what do they represent, I wanna point out that first phrase there, a great sign. That phrase in the original language literally means a great symbolic display. What does that tell you about everything that comes after that? It's a great symbolic display display, okay? You see, John, as the seventh trumpet is sounded here, and he's witnessing this proclamation of the long foretold victory, and and at the end of chapter 11 there, he was seeing the redeemed church worshiping God uh, for his just wielding of of his power in judgment. Because remember, you know, we talked about, like, who wants to celebrate God judging people? But God is holy, God is just, God is perfect, and it is right. Inappropriate appropriate for a holy and perfect God to judge wickedness and sin. And he has been giving people for generations and generations the opportunity to receive forgiveness for sin, but, but some simply don't. They remain in their rebellion against God. They hate God. They stand against God. And during tribulation, it's the last hurrah, if you will, for people to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and yet many don't many stand against him. And so as the judgments are falling and as final judgment falls, it is righteous. It is just. And so we see the people in heaven celebrating that God is wielding his righteous authority and his righteous power in judgment. And then right after that, here in Revelation 12, we see this great symbolic display in heaven. And this symbolic display opens with this woman, this woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. So again, this woman we see here is not an actual literal woman John is seeing in heaven. It's a great symbolic display. It's a great sign, as it's told us there. It's a a sign that points to a reality, okay? It's representative of something, and that is, It's just a very, very important point in your own Bible study as you read your Bible and have your devotion time. Um, Generally, the Bible as a whole, including the book of Revelation, is to be taken literally unless the content is stated as symbolic. That is one of the core teachings of, of, of studying the Bible. Because if we get too excited about making everything symbolic, well, then you come up with all kinds of weird and strange teaching and cults and other things that we see in the world today, right? So, so a basic Bible study rule is what you read is to be taken literal unless the content is stated as symbolic. And a lot of times throughout Revelation, um, we've seen literal things stated there that are strange, right? John saw these four living creatures, and he tried to describe them, and one had the head of an eagle and the head of an ox, and, right? And we're going, well, that has to be symbolic, but it's stated as literal, But then there's other things that that are stated like, you know, the locust had a a breastplate like this and something like that. And so you just got to be able to um, look at that as you study through Scripture. But but again, here, what we're seeing is not a literal woman as other actual literal things we've seen in Revelation. Um, It's a symbol. Now... We have seen four symbolic women, or we'll see a total of four symbolic women uh, in Revelation, or something represented as a woman four different times in Revelation. Back in chapter two, you had the spirit of Jezebel as the church was addressed there, having the spirit of Jezebel, and it wasn't an actual woman named Jezebel. That woman Jezebel there in chapter two was uh, symbolic of paganism, paganism that was infecting the church. In chapter 17, we'll see another woman called the Scarlet Woman who is referenced and called a a harlot. She is called a harlot in Revelation, and that woman, when we get there into chapter 17, is symbolic of the apostate false religion of the end times. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, we're going to see a woman that is called the wife of the Lamb, and she is representative or symbolic of the church, which is called the Bride of Christ. Here in Revelation 12, we see this woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and this crown of 12 stars on her head. And so naturally, the question is, who or what is she symbolic of? There are a number of different thoughts on this if you, if you look into it. Some uh, specifically in, in a Catholic church or from a Catholic background interpret this as this is vir- the Virgin Mary. Some, like uh, those in the Christian science cult, claim that this is the founder of their cult, Mary Baker Eddy. And they say, no, this woman is representative of her, and they go through the whole chapter and symbolize all this stuff to say, it's all about our Christian science cults. Some look at this and go, it's the church. It's representative of the church. And that foundation, incidentally, um, is, is a foundation that is required for some who hold a pre-trib or a pre-wrath interpretation of Revelation. I don't have time to get into all the details of that, but I'll deal with that um, particular interpretation a little bit. I, however, say that it's symbolic of the nation of Israel. This woman is symbolic of the nation of Israel. Um, specifically because this whole picture here, we see that she was clothed with the sun and there's the moon present under her feet and there's a crown of 12 stars around her head. Um, That picture is almost exactly used another time already in Scripture to specifically reference the nation of Israel. Specifically back in uh, uh, Genesis chapter 37, You had Joseph, who was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Jacob, who incidentally was renamed Israel. He is the father of the nation of Israel. This son of his, Joseph, had a couple dreams that we read about in Genesis chapter 37. Now, in the first dream that he had, he saw 12 sheaves of wheat, right? There was 12 sheaves of wheat and 11 of those sheaves bowed down to the 12th sheaf of wheat. And he then interpreted this dream or understood in this dream that the 12th sheaf of wheat was himself. So the other 11 bowed down to him. And so in Genesis 37, we read that he went and he told his brothers. Now Joseph was kind of like the um, bright-eyed, naive, uh, positive thinking kid, right? And uh, his brothers hated him because he was dad's favorite. And so he went and told his brothers, brothers, like I had this wonderful dream I want to share with you. You're all going to bow down to me one day. Well, how do you think they took that, right? They're like, are you kidding me? (laughs) No, I don't think so. You're going to rule over us? Nah, that's not going to happen. Well, he then has a second dream in Genesis chapter 37, starting in verse 9, and it says this. Then he had another dream and told it to his brothers. Look, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. He told his father and brothers, and his father rebuked him. What kind of dream is this that you've had, he said. Am I and your mother and your brothers really going to come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. And so he has this dream where we see the sun and the moon And 12 stars, right? 11 of them bow down to him. He was the 12th star. And so we see this picture where where Jacob then interprets the dream. Am I your father and mother, the sun and the moon, and your brothers, the 11 stars? Are we all going to bow down to you, right? And so this tells us that Joseph's vision there, that dream that he had, was a dream and a vision of the nation of Israel. It was all about the nation of Israel. And then um, you add to that Um, Looking at Revelation chapter 12, you add to that that throughout the whole Old Testament, um, numerous, numerous times, the nation of Israel is referenced symbolically as a woman. Um, she is referenced as the wife of God. She is referenced as the unfaithful wife of God. There's even places in the Old Testament where where God is symbolically saying, look, I'm going to divorce you as an unfaithful person to me. And so this whole picture of this woman that we see in Revelation 12 that, that is clothed with the sun and has the moons on her feet and the 12 stars around her head, all of that together, it's, it's a picture of the nation of Israel. It's a symbolic picture of the nation of Israel. and. That shouldn't surprise us that Israel is is featured so prominently um, in the picture of redemptive history. I mean, Israel really takes center stage in the picture of redemptive history and is a major focal point of revelation as we've talked about in the past. That one of the um, points or intents of this seven-year period of tribulation at the end of history here is God dealing with His people, His chosen people, Israel. So it shouldn't surprise us um, that, that, that this is a representation of Israel. It shouldn't be like, oh, it can't be. It's impossible because God has, has had a special place for them throughout all of history. God promised to the nation of Israel a messianic kingdom that would come. God made them, as I've stated, his chosen people. Out of all the nations of the earth, God chose the Jews to be his chosen people. And, and, and because of that, they have been harassed throughout history. They have been harassed, and and some people go, well, why did God choose the Jews, right? Why didn't God choose another people group, another nation? Um, Why did he choose them? Well, it wasn't because they were more numerous than the other nations, right? They they weren't the most populous of all the nations. Um, In fact, even today. According to census uh, numbers in 2022, Jews account for two-tenths of 1% of the entire world's population. So if you're a number person, that means out of the 8 billion people that live on the planet, about 15 million of them are Jewish. So God didn't choose them because they were the most numerous, right? In fact, we read that in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, where it says this. The Lord had his heart set on you and chose you. And he's speaking to the nation of Israel. Not because you were more numerous than all the peoples, for you were actually the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you. And he kept the oath he swore to his ancestors. So, why did God choose Israel? Why did God choose the Jewish people? Because he loved them, he chose to. He chose them because He chose them. That's it. <laughs> Israel as a people, they, 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 they didn't have anything um, of value intrinsically. Right? God didn't choose them because they were strong, because they were smart, because they were rich. God didn't choose them for any other reason because He just, I chose them. And it tells us that He chose them because He loved them. And in His choosing them because He loved them, He chose them to demonstrate His grace, to bring forth His Holy Scripture to the world, which is where you know, the Old Testament comes from. And, and the authors of the New Testament, most of them are Jewish, right? To, to bring His promises, His covenants. But specifically, and most importantly, through the Jewish nation, through the Jewish people, is where He chose to eventually bring the Messiah, the Savior of all mankind, to be born Himself into this world, God in the flesh. And so this whole picture of this woman here and the Son... And the moon and the stars, it all represents the nation of Israel. Verse 2, it tells us she was pregnant and cried out in labor and agony as she was about to give birth. Now, later on in verse 5, we're going to see this woman give birth to a son, a child who would then rule all the nations with an iron rod. And, and when we get there, we'll see that this, this child in this vision, this symbolic vision that John is seeing here, this child is representative of the Messiah. It's representative of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But, but going back to the idea of this woman being uh, representative of the nation of Israel, we see that she's pregnant and she's crying out in labor and agony because she's about to give birth. The whole picture here, um, if you study the, the Jewish nation, you know, the, the culturally the hope of every Jewish mother was to, was to give birth to a child. That, that was the hope, but specifically, the, the big hope was that their child would be the Messiah, that they would be the one to give birth to the Messiah because it was prophesied that, that God would come through and be born into the flesh that way. And so every Jewish mother's hope was to not just have a child, which was a huge blessing, but to give birth to the Messiah himself. Nationally, Israel the nation, man, they, they hoped for, they longed for the Messiah to come. And that's what we read through the whole Old Testament. They were looking forward. They couldn't wait for the Messiah to come and to redeem them. Prophetically, it's even spoken of um, in numerous places, like Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 says this, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. And so they hung on to these prophecies waiting for their Messiah to come. In the New Testament, we read when Simeon um, received Jesus in the temple at, at Jesus' baby dedication, it says in Luke chapter 2, verse 34, that he held up the baby, and he's like, indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. And we've seen that from the time of Jesus until now, where most Many in the Jewish nation of the Jewish people reject Jesus as their Messiah. They don't believe he's the Messiah, and so they're still waiting. They're still waiting for the Messiah to come. They're still waiting for their worship of God to be restored, which we've talked about, as as they're waiting for their temple to be rebuilt on the Temple Mount so they could start the sacrifices again, so they could do everything that they think they need to do to make God pleased with them as a nation. But here, this woman that represents the nation of Israel is seen given birth to a child, the Messiah. And that's incidentally why this, can't be, this woman can't be representative of the church. You see, the church didn't bring forth Christ. Christ brought forth the church. So for, for those that go, no, this woman is representative of the church, it doesn't make any sense when you're following the symbolic representation here because Christ is the one who birthed the church, right? There was Israel... Then, then, then Christ came and lived and died, and then through his death and his resurrection, the church was born where, where the gospel was, was, was presented to everybody, and Jew and Gentile both alike were able to come into this covenant of salvation. But verse 3, we're now introduced to the second character of the story here, the dragon. It says, then another sign appeared in heaven. There was a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. And on its heads were seven crowns. Its tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she did give birth, it might devour her child. And so we talked about the woman. Now who is this? Who is this great fiery dragon representative well we don't have to work really hard or speculate too much on this because later on in verse 9 of revelation chapter 12 it says so the great dragon was thrown out the ancient serpent who is called the devil and satan so who's the dragon satan right we don't have to argue about that one um, and then it says in, in verse 9 of Revelation 12, the one who deceives the whole world, and it says he was thrown to the earth and his angels with him. Well, that phrase, his angels with him, is connected back here to verse 4, where we see that his the tail of this great fiery red dragon swept away a third of the stars. And that word stars there is used in other places to reference angels, to reference these supernatural heavenly beings. And so that's where we get the idea that in his rebellion, this is incidentally the only place, um, that we get that idea that a third of the angels fell with Satan, that a third went with him in his rebellion. And so they were swept away to the earth in that rebellion with Satan. And so here we have this woman representative of the nation of Israel, about to give birth to her child, the Messiah, which was the plan from the very beginning. We'll talk about that later. And then we have this dragon who apparently hates this woman and is ready, just waiting for that child to be born so he could devour the child. Now you'll notice there in verse 3 it says, then another sign. Guess what that word sign is? Great symbolic display. Okay, it's the same word we already saw for the woman. So we see Satan is portrayed symbolically as a great, fiery, red dragon. Now, um, I mean, this whole thing is playing out like a really intricate Dungeons and Dragons campaign, okay? Um, I mean, it's, it's just, you know, these pictures of this stuff, you know? And... He uses the word great fiery red dragon. That word great means remarkable in degree or magnitude. It's like truly, these, these things he's seeing are truly magnificent, truly huge, truly awe-inspiring in that sense. And so as a dragon, um, he's called a dragon because I believe it's representative of his personality, who he is in his core. He is called many things in scripture, Satan. He's called a serpent he's called a devouring lion, and here he's called this great fiery red dragon, and I believe that's just kind of one of the most ferocious pictures of who Satan is that, that, that can be brought up, this dragon, you know, because historically dragons, if you go through, you know, different uh, cultures, histories, and stuff, um, oftentimes dragons are represented as ferocious, terrifying, destructive monsters, right? They're they're not necessarily these these cute, you know, like the one we have in our foyer, you know, cute little blue dragon with puppy dog eyes, right? That's not typically how dragons are representative in culture. And specifically, it's using this idea of fiery red to to indicate, you know, the destructive nature of fire. And biblically, the color red is often associated with blood, bloodshed, and violence. And so um, we see that even in, in fantasy literature. There's there's fantasy literature that um, will, will represent different colors of dragons. You have blue dragons and black dragons and green dragons and stuff. But in, 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 in fantasy lit- literature, the red dragon is often the archetype of the really, really bad evil dragons, right? And so that's what we see here. Um, and then that color red even harkens back to the red horse of Revelation 6, which was the horse that brought war and death and killing and all of that. And so this red, great fiery red dragon, it says, has seven heads and ten horns, and there's seven crowns sitting on those seven heads. And again, this is a great symbolic display. So what is it representative of? Well, the multiple heads um, and, and all of that are tied to numbers. And if you remember, the number seven biblically is often a number that represents completeness. It represents the totality of something, and so in chapter one we saw, you know, the seven lampstands, right? And there was a complete picture of the church, you know, represented there. And so, this these seven heads is likely representative of his intelligence. That's the idea of the head. It's a word that refers to that your brain, your thinking capacity. And so the idea here is it's a complete picture of of his of his full total intellect in his in his thinking there. Um, the idea is that the devil is not a dummy, and sometimes we can think that, right? Oh, he's just a big dummy, and and he's not. Satan is incredibly intelligent, incredibly intelligent. He's been studying humanity since the very beginning. On top of that, he's cunning, he's devious, he's sly. He's a master manipulator. He's the best liar. He's so intelligent and and, and devious in all these ways that we read in Jude, even Michael the archangel, it says, dared not bring an accusation against him, but instead said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, this is me speculating here, but I think a part of that was because you bring any accusation against the devil, man, he's gonna spin it. He's, He's smart enough to spin it in a way where you're gonna like, oh yeah, maybe you're the victim. That's speculation on my part. But the idea is don't think you're gonna outsmart the devil. This is one of the ideas of us dealing with temptation and trials in our lives. Don't think you're gonna outsmart the devil. You're not gonna win in a chess match with him. You're not gonna figure it out and in your own intellect go, okay, I got him, I tricked him. You're not gonna do that. The devil's smarter than you. Now, God is greater, amen, hallelujah, but we're not there yet, okay? But he says there's seven crowns on those seven heads. And again, since seven is a picture of totality and crowns are representing here the idea of of a local type of uh, authority and rulership, that it's a picture of his total authority over his kingdom. And so what it's telling us here is that this intelligent dragon has a kingdom that he has total authority over. And that's an interesting picture. You know, the Bible tells us that he's the prince of the power of the air, That in this age, he kind of has rulership over the earth. Why? Because man gave it to him in the garden. And so he's been harassing mankind ever since and using his authority uh, in this world to harass not just mankind, but harass Israel specifically and Christians specifically. And so he has authority. He has a kingdom. And during the tribulation period, we're going to see that kingdom kind of coalesce into a very visible, obvious thing. And that is when we get to the ten horns here. Ten horns. The horns are are, um, biblically something that is often representative of strength, right? So it's representing his strength. Um, Animals were often said, especially in in, in a cultural context of of, um, Jewish thinking, the strength of an animal was in its horns, was the idea, right? We kind of get that today when we see uh, those of you that are hunters, you know, and if you hunt bucks, you know, the, the greater the antlers of the buck, the more majestic, the more powerful that buck is considered to be. Probably because if it hits you with those answers, it, antlers, it could cut you in half. But still, it's like this, this great, you know, the antlers, the, the bigger they are, the, the more magnificent they are, the, the greater the trophy when you take down that buck, right? Well, ten horns um, could be a reference to the ten nations, That are then banded together to form the global government during the tribulation time this this ten nation coalition that that Satan has control of and so The idea of ten horns here could be a picture of of Satan's strength being in that these this this global government that comes together That Satan has total authority over is his strength during this time. It's how he's able to do what he does during the tribulation period but it's an interesting note that the devil's kingdom the devil's authority, even as it's said in Ephesians that he's the prince of the power of the air, his, his authority is, is in this earth. His authority is on this earth. And again, like I said, because man gave it to him. We gave it to him in the garden. We traded it to him for what we thought was gonna be knowledge of good and evil, that we were gonna be as smart as God was, and he tricked us. He tricked mankind. <laughs> surprise, surprise. The devil never tells you the truth or it only tells you enough of the truth to lead you into doing something stupid. But he's a deceiver. That's who he is. And so this picture here, it's although his true nature, his true character is one of of a horrid, devastating creature of destruction, and that's what's being pictured here in this great fiery red dragon. We know that in our age of grace now, the Bible tells us that it's often during this age through his clever disguises that he's most effective. Right? During tribulation, he's gonna pull the mask off. He's gonna come straight out and be like, you know, hey, worship me as God. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. I'm getting ahead of myself. But point is, is during this time, we have to know that although the devil... Um, well, we have to know that the devil is this, this horrid, destructive, terrible monster, regardless of how he presents himself to us. Because in this age, he presents himself as, as the Bible says, an angel of light. He comes to us with, with subtle temptations. He doesn't come right out and say, I am the devil, and I want to destroy your marriage. And so, you know what? Do this. No, no, what he says is, oh wow, you know, that, that guy at work, he's just so nice and understanding and man, he listens like your husband doesn't. Maybe you should talk to him more. He's subtle in his manipulations. He'll come to you and say, look, I know you had a struggle with alcohol before, but one drink won't, won't cause a problem. He doesn't come out and say, I want you to die from liver failure. He's subtle in this age. But we have to understand that underneath that facade... Wow, we're getting a picture of it right here. Underneath his, his disguise as an angel of light is this horrible, disgusting, evil wickedness that wants nothing more than to destroy you. And he's going to lie to you, and he's going to manipulate you, and he's going to make you think the bad things are good things. And the only way you're going to be able to stand against that is through Jesus Christ. It's through being grounded in the word of God to be able to discern the difference. Verse four, it tells us, this dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that when she did give birth, it might devour her child. So Satan, this, this great fiery red dragon, hates this woman Israel. Why? Because of this child. Because of this child. It, it's in Satan's mind from the very beginning of all things if I can destroy this nation, I can destroy the plan of God. That was Satan's goal from the beginning. That's his plan. And he thought, if I could destroy this nation and destroy God's plan, well, then I make that self-righteous God a liar because he promised A messianic kingdom to this nation this jewish nation he promised a messiah to the world and so you know this nation this nation israel it's connected to all of it it's connected to all of redemptive history so if i can mess that up then i made god a liar and so he's been endeavoring to wipe them out to prevent the child to outsmart god to mess up his plan and 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 again follow me here we go all the way back to genesis chapter three right God created man and woman in his image. He placed them in the Garden of Eden in paradise. Gave them everything they wanted, right? Didn't have to wake up to go to work, paradise. Didn't have to pay bills, paradise. Didn't have to name their car so it would start in the morning, paradise. Come on Betsy, you can do it. Everything was perfect, perfect. God said, it's all yours, just one thing. Don't eat of that tree. Okay. Certain come, serpent comes in, what does he do? Why did God tell you that? He's trying to hide something from you. You know, he knows when you eat of that tree, you'll, you'll have knowledge like him. That, that's, I mean, God's being a little selfish, isn't he? Holding, withholding from you. Didn't he tell you everything in this garden is yours? So he tricks Adam and Eve entices them into sin and that's the fall of mankind as disobedience to God brought sin and death into the world and then after that God made a promise to Satan in Genesis three fifteen. he said I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he will strike your head and you will strike his heel what that phrase means is like look he he's gonna have her offspring will have a minor setback right death he died on the cross but you are going to have a major defeat because he's going to rise from the dead and defeat your power forever right that's the idea there and satan goes well genesis 4 cain and abel are the kids abel's the righteous one so i'm going to influence cain to kill abel and we know that story right abel is righteous before god he worshiped God according to God's ways. God accepted his sacrifice. Cain tried to worship God according to Cain's own methods. God said, no, no, no. You have to do it my way. You have to be obedient to my ways. And Cain got mad, killed Abel. Why? I think he was encouraged by Satan to do so. And Satan's like, problem solved. Took out the offspring. There is going to be no seed that's going to crush my head anymore. Cain kills Abel. Abel's dead. Cain gets cursed. Aha, they're all out of the picture. And what is Satan thinking? Whew. I just averted the one who is going to crush my head, Hallelujah. But then God raises up another line through Seth, and so on and so forth. We get to Genesis six; the whole world is getting populated. And Satan's going, hm, "What do I do about this?" So he inspires such wickedness, such corruption, such violence on Earth that God decides to wipe out the entire population of Earth, except for eight people that He sustains through the Ark. They survive the flood. They then go on to repopulate the earth, and new civilization civilization comes up. Then we get to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Genesis chapter 27, right? Jacob is the one that the seed, the line is gonna come through, and guess what? One day his brother Esau wants to murder him. Wants to murder him. And I believe it was Satan that inspired Esau to wanna kill Jacob, because Jacob was in the line of the offspring of promise. But it didn't happen. Then we get to Exodus chapter one, Pharaoh. All the male Hebrew children should be murdered. Kill them all. Kill them all. If it's a girl, let her live. But if it's a boy, throw it in the Nile and let it drown. Wow. I think again, inspired by Satan to destroy the Jewish race, right? Because without the males, there's no continuance of the race here. And if there's no continuance of the race, there's no seed. So the Messiah can't come. The one who's gonna crush my head can't be born if I have Pharaoh murder all the male children. Well, then we have one wonderful mom who says, ah, hides her child and we get Moses and the line continues and we keep going through scripture and then we read passages in First Samuel where King Saul wanted to kill David. He hated David, he hated David. The people loved David. The king of the land, the most powerful man in the nation wanted to kill David, why? Well again, David was a part of the royal line. And so Satan wanted to wipe it out. God's promise promised already at this point that all his hope would be found in the offspring. And that offspring was going to come through David. And Satan's like, so wipe him out. Get the king to kill David. But he can't. And then the histories keep going on. And we get to this really crazy story in 2 Kings 11. And it's also recorded in 2 Chronicles 22. In this story, you have a king named Ahaziah. King Ahaziah dies. And his wife, or I'm sorry, his mother, Athaliah, decides, I'm going to murder all the royal heirs in the line of Judah here. I'm going to murder all of them. And if all of the people in the royal line died, guess what? That would include David's line. That would include the line and no offspring. And so all, in the royal, in the, all of the royal heirs are murdered except one named Joash. One little baby. Joash, it tells us, is hidden away until he's seven. Think about that. There was a point in history where the redemption of all of mankind, past, present, and future, God's promise, his kingdom, everything hinged on one little baby boy. One little baby boy, but God protects, doesn't he? God preserves, and King Joash Joash emerges as a king, and the promised lineage continues. And then we get back up to Revelation chapter 12, 5 here, where it says she gave birth to a son. So through the nation of Israel, through the lineage, through the promises, God has, um, has the woman here, the nation, produced the offspring. And so this dragon is trying to kill her back in history before the offspring came, trying to wipe out the Jewish race, but he couldn't. And then the Messiah is born, Jesus Christ born in Bethlehem. And you go into the beginning of the gospels, right? Those first couple of chapters that most of you probably skip over because they're genealogies. Why do I want to read a list of names? That's boring. Because it tells us that Jesus is a part of the line all the way back to the promise. As soon as the offspring was born, the devil's strategy shifted. Since I couldn't prevent the Messiah from being born, I'm going to devour the child. I'm going to kill the child. And So what does he do? Herod. Herod. Have all the baby boys under two murdered. All the baby boys, right? You guys know the story. A satanic attempt to destroy the offspring. But Jesus is saved and his parents flee to Egypt and they come back later so Jesus is preserved and he grows up, the Messiah. Then after he's baptized, it tells us that Satan himself took him to the pinnacle of the temple and he said, hey Jesus, why don't you jump off the temple? I'm gonna misquote some scripture to you talking about how God's gonna save you and you're not even able to stub your toe. Trying to trick Jesus into committing suicide. Aha! Stop the salvation of the world. What did Jesus say? I'm going to paraphrase. <laughs> okay? Luke 4. Jesus in the synagogue of Nazareth, right? where he reads that scroll, he reads from Isaiah, and he basically effectively proclaims to all those gathered there, look, I, I'm the Messiah, I'm, I'm God's chosen one, I'm the one that was prophesied. What does it tell us in that story? They, want, they took him out to the edge of a hill that the city was built on, and they wanted to throw him over. They wanted to kill him for blasphemy. But the story tells us that he passed right through them. They were like, where'd he go? Jesus continues to live. Satan did everything he could to prevent the birth of the seed the birth of the offspring, the birth of the child of promise, and then failing to prevent it, he did everything he could to devour that child, to kill him before he did his redemptive work by laying down his life on the altar of atonement, by dying on the cross for the sins of the whole world. And after all his failures, because guess what? Jesus died, the devil celebrated. We did it. Wait a second. And we have the thing we celebrate every year on Resurrection Sunday, that he came back from the dead. Amen. Absolutely. After all his failures, he still persists in afflicting the woman, however. Because, again, God promised that in the end, and in the end times picture of things, that that Jesus himself, the Savior of mankind, he he would use Israel, the nation, as chosen people to rule and reign from. The Bible tells us geographically that, that during the millennial kingdom, he's gonna reign from Mount Zion in Jerusalem. He's gonna fulfill all the promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's gonna, he's gonna fulfill all the promises to the 12 tribes he's made. He's gonna restore them. It's gonna be beautiful. So after, the, after the, um, the plan that Satan had after the birth of Jesus was, well, if I couldn't stop him from being born and I couldn't kill him while he was here, and I couldn't do anything about his redemption of all mankind, well, guess what? Then I'm going to wipe out the entire nation that he's supposed to rule from so there can't be a messianic kingdom. And that's what we've seen over the course of history. And not just the Jews, but any and all who become part of the kingdom of God, any and all who are part of the future inheritors of God's kingdom, he wants to wipe them all out. He wants to kill them all. Jews particularly have faced intense, concentrated ethnic extermination multiple times in history. Multiple times. The nation, as a group, has has, people have tried to wipe them out. You had Pharaoh. We talked about that, right? There's another story um, where Haman tried to wipe out, genocide the whole nation in the Old Testament. In the 1350s, the Black Plague was raging around Europe. Guess who they blamed it on? Jews. 50% of the Jewish population was murdered during that time. Then, of course, in most recent history, we know of Hitler and the Holocaust. Round up all the Jews. Wipe them out. Satan inspired. Satan inspired. The point is, is whatever God loves, Satan hates. Whatever God loves, Satan hates. If it's it's chosen by God, the devil's going to come against it. The devil is going to attack, and and this will be readily and aggressively and terribly seen during the tribulation period, specifically when we get to that three-and-a-half-year mark where the abomination of desolation happens, and the Antichrist, who made a peace treaty with them, breaks that treaty, enters the temple, says, I'm God, worship me, desecrates the place, and that's what we read here in verse 6. It said, the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God to be nourished there for how many? 1260 days. 1260 days is incidentally three and a half years, right? So we, we've looked all the way back in time. We've seen Satan's fall. He took a third of the angels with him. We've seen him um, you know, corrupt in the garden. We've seen him attack. We, we, we've seen him come against God and everything God loves over and over and over. And then then we come all the way forward through time, right? We came through the preservation of Israel and we come past the redemption plan of the Messiah being born, the Savior being born and dying on the cross and, and, you know, and all of that that means, right? Him living and dying to pay the price for the sins of all who would call upon his name. Hallelujah. Him being the only means for salvation and forgiveness and freedom from sin. All of that. And that is what is available today to all who would call in the name of Christ. But as we're looking in Revelation, we've come through the age of grace, we've come through the six trumpet judgment, or seal judgments, or seven seal judgments, we've come through the trumpet judgments, and we've come all the way up to the seventh trumpet. As John is going, okay, let me step back and just see a panorama of what this is all about. And we're coming up to this last 1260 days now here in verse 6 of Revelation 12, a time that the Bible refers to as Jacob's trouble. Why? Because Israel is being persecuted. Jews are being persecuted like they never have. And during this last three and a half years, we're going to see Satan trying to fully and finally and completely destroy the Jews in a way that's never happened before. And that's why it says this woman flees. Israel flees. But she is nourished there by God for 1260 days. That last three and a half years of this 70th week of Daniel, this time referred to as the great tribulation. But after that, there's a second coming of Christ. We're going to get there. The millennial kingdom, we're going to get there. But let's close real fast with the third character. So we had the woman, we had the dragon. Now we have the child, and I've referenced that a little bit, but look at verse 5 again. Just back up one verse for me. So she gave birth to a son, a male who's going to rule all nations with an iron rod. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So as I've already stated, this, this child is the Messiah, the Savior of all mankind, born out of the nation of Israel, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the one whom Satan tried to prevent from coming, the one who Satan tried to destroy before he could die as the sacrifice. He's a male going to rule all the nations with an iron rod. Again, this harkens back to that prophecy in Isaiah 9-6. It says, for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. This iron rod This iron rod is is the idea that his rule will be absolute. His rule will be final. When the kingdom of God comes, it's done, it's forever. And so, this child that this woman gave birth to becomes the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. That's what the Bible keeps teaching us and talking about. Satan tried to stop him from being a born. Couldn't do it. Tried to stop him from accomplishing redemption on the cross. Couldn't do it. Tried to perhaps stop him from rising from the dead. Couldn't do it. Neither could he stop Jesus from rising from the dead and then ascending to heaven as we see here that her child was caught up to God in his throne. And Satan will not under any circumstances, be able to stop his rule over all the earth. This is good news, people. This is great news. This is fantastic news, you know, but today in the midst of all the temptations we face and the discouragements that come our way, in the face of all the voices, you know, telling us, give up, quit, it's too hard, saying it's never going to get better the voices that might try and speak into our lives and say, God doesn't love you. What a failure you are. Look at how bad you are. In the face of all of that, read the end of the book. God wins. God has redeemed you. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are redeemed. You're redeemed. You're saved now and forever. God loves you. And that is, incidentally, why Satan hates you so much and why he comes against you so much. Satan is a defeated foe. Yes, he's intelligent. Yes, he's smart. Yes, he has a loud bark. Yes, he can be scary at times. All of that is true. Yes, a third of the angels fell with him, and that's a lot of angels that are now demons. But as we've said before, that means two-thirds of the angels didn't fall. That tells us that Satan and his army is outnumbered two to one. What do we have to be afraid of? But more importantly, Christian, you have God on your side. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Yes, you will be attacked. Yes, you will be harassed, just like the woman we've seen here has been attacked, is being attacked, will be attacked, and we'll get to more details of that as we move through these chapters here when we see the abomination of desolation and the desecration of the temple and all of that. But we know God protects. We know God preserves because we see it here in Revelation chapter 12. But most importantly than all of that is He glorifies those who trust in Him. We are saved but here and now today, yeah, we, we, we need to know our enemy. We find victory in that, right? We need to know who Satan is, who he really is. We need to know his, his aims, his, his lies, his deceptions. And we only know those things by knowing the truth. That's why we got to study the word and read the Bible. This, this, this whole thing cover to cover that God gave us, that is his revealed will. We have to study all of it and read all of it. Not, don't, not just highlighting a few verses. That's good. Highlight verses, memorize verses, but, but not just that, is to read all of it. That's why we teach through all of it. That's why we study through all of it. That's why we deal with every single verse, because we want to know everything God has to say to us about who he is, about who we are, about who our enemy is, so that we can fight victoriously as we learn our enemy's strategies and what he tries to do, and we learn how to avoid those things. We learn how to win when the temptations come today. But not only that, we're then equipped to go out and fight and to share the gospel and to be a part of bringing the light into this dark world. And, and... But all along the way, Satan is trying to destroy you because God loves you. And so don't be deceived by the angel of light. Don't be deceived by his temptations and his lures. See past his disguises. See him for what he is, a great fiery red dragon of death and destruction, a terrible monster who wants to destroy you and to destroy your life. And pray, pray. Cling to God, cling to the one who could protect you and preserve you and provide for, for, for your needs in your life. You might remember a story when uh, Jesus came to Peter one day. And I can't imagine this happening. It would would scare me. (laughs) He goes, hey, Peter, bro, the devil's been asking for you lately. Why do you need to tell me that, Jesus? Keep that to yourself, all right? (laughs) I mean, come on. The devil has been asking for you lately. He wants to sift you like wheat, Peter. And I imagine Peter was probably nervous at that moment. But I love what Jesus said to Peter but I've prayed for you. I have prayed for you. And that is where our ultimate defense lies. Not in what, but who? Jesus Christ, our hope, our Lord, our Savior, our everything. And as we are quickly hurtling towards difficult and dark times in our world, and as we know, reading this book, what is to come, and as we live every day attacked by Satan and his demons. We know we win. We know we have victory. Walk in that. Trust in that. Even in the moment where you're like, this doesn't feel like victory. I'm not quite sure what's going on. Trust God because we know the end of the book, amen? Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much. Lord, we're so grateful for your plan of redemption. We're so thankful, God, that, that despite the wiles of the devil, you preserved all of it. We're so thankful, God, that in the midst of his attacks on Israel, you protected them. That through those people, that nation that you chose, that you love so much, God, you chose them to, to bring the gospel to the world, the, the holy scripture, the word of God, Lord, and we know that through them so much of it came. And God, so many of us that aren't a part of the Jewish nation, Lord, your word says that through our faith in you we have been grafted in, that we are a part of this new entity called the church. And and Lord, you love us equally. Lord, you love all those that are yours. And we're so thankful. And yet, Lord, we know that there's an enemy out there who hates us, who schemes against us nonstop. Lord, we pray that you would deliver us from evil. We pray, Lord, you would deliver us from temptation. We pray, pray, Lord, in the midst of the attack, we would remember you. We would remember the end of the book that we have won. Lord, in the midst of hopelessness and despair, that we would remember, God, the end of the story because you have revealed it to us. And may we then walk in hope and confidence and boldness, Lord, despite what's going on, trusting in you because it's in you that we find everything we need. And Lord, you are the one, <clears throat> even now, in heaven praying for us. Just as you prayed for Peter, Lord. And oh, how we need your prayers, God. So Lord, we thank you for your great grace and your mercy. Lord, help us to, to cling to you, not try to fight our battles on our own to not try and fight against the enemy on our own, Lord, but to let you do the fighting for us. God, your word told us that that victory belongs to you. And God, I personally am totally fine with you fighting the battle for me, God. Help us to remember that and cling to that, rejoice in that, to praise you and to worship you for that, to glorify your name for that, and then to tell everybody we could come across, Lord, about the hope and the freedom and the victory that is found in you. God, we love you so much. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Well, let's worship, guys.